And so what this means is that American politics is is really governed not by bonds of affection for for my party, but it's a politics of loyalty by negativity. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. The topic of today's episode is rage, the rage that we feel when we turn our mind to politics. I think it's no secret that politics in the US and many European countries has become increasingly elemental and divisive in recent years, often touching closely on questions of identity which engage our deepest human emotions. Anger has certainly been one of them. Our guest today has done some really interesting research into the role that anger plays in American politics and the role that it's played particularly in producing three outcomes. Firstly, decreased trust in the national government. Secondly, eroding commitment to democratic values. And finally, increased partisan loyalty. So three characteristics that have really influenced American politics and of course we saw come to a kind of point of culmination in the January 6th insurrection earlier this year. I think that this research is really illuminating, not just for understanding American politics and recent events such as the insurrection, but also potentially instructive as well for understanding European politics. So I'm really pleased to welcome to the show today Stephen Webster from Indiana University, who's going to be discussing the research that he's published on this issue in his new book. That book is called Rage, and you can find a link to it in the show notes. Uh, So welcome, Stephen, to the show. Thanks for having me. So um, I I follow American politics pretty closely, as I think do most of the people listening to this podcast. And I've definitely noticed a lot of anger, especially in the last four years. Um, Trump had a way of driving his opponents nuts. And people who supported Trump had a way of of becoming nuts with people who opposed him. You know, so I see it on social media. I see it in my family Facebook feeds. You know, I see it on TV. I see it radio. I see it for the like eight hours a day that I'm on Twitter. Um, but you know, you're you're a you know, I noticed this anger, but you're a connoisseur of this anger. You chose to to spend years of your life studying it, and I wondered what it was that set you down that path. So, how did you see this anger manifesting itself in in your daily life in American politics that that uh, made you decide to focus on this topic? You know, I think there's there's a lot of things that, that made me interested in anger. And so I think it'd be difficult to, to pinpoint any one specific thing. But I think some of the things that you've highlighted are, are very true. You know, it's impossible to go on Facebook or Twitter or even just have a conversation without anger somehow manifesting itself. Increasingly, anger and politics go hand in hand. And we can't really separate anger from people's political beliefs in the United States. One thing that that I always reflect on, um, and it was probably one thing that I didn't quite realize was formative for me until many years later, but I remember it was about 10 years ago, I was working in the U.S. Senate, and I was giving a tour of the United States Capitol to some people, um, and it was just a husband and wife, and we were in the the, um, the gallery of the House of Representatives looking down onto the chamber. And I said, you know, the Republicans sit here on the right, the Democrats are here on the left. And the, the husband looks at his wife and said, see, honey, the, the Republicans are on the correct side. And she said, no, the Democrats <laughs> are on the correct side. So, you know, it's very clearly this play on words with right and correct. And they started arguing so much and it got so heated that we were actually kicked out by the sergeant at arms wow. of the House Gallery. So, you know, after we're unceremoniously kicked out of the House of Representatives, I said, you know, this is this is crazy. I need to go figure out why people are so angry and how that anger affects the way they engage with the world of politics 
and how they engage with with other people who are also engaged with the world of politics. Yeah, and you've really got to wonder how that marriage is doing 10 years later after the, the right? Trump years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's a real point. You know, we've seen these things saying that people are more okay with um, interracial marriages now than cross-partisan ones. And that's, you know, one of the, just the, the craziest statistics that I think I've seen. So just just before we, we really drill down into the findings of, of your work, and we talked a little bit already about social media. And I wondered how much you think social media has been driving um, this anger, you know, so the way that it forces people to simplify things and the way that the most extreme posts often get the, the most spread and most likely to go viral. So do you think that this is in many ways a, a social media phenomenon that we're seeing? You know, I think it's inherently difficult to study social media. But one thing I'll say is that social media is certainly... Um, sort of reifying this anger that we see. You know, it, it's rare that somebody opens up Twitter or Facebook and says, ah, I feel so calm now. <laughs> right? if, if anything, you, you see something that kind of gets your, your heart beating and your, your blood starts to boil a little bit. And it's because th these things that make us angry are the things that grab our attention the most. And whether it's other people or advertisers or companies, they want your attention. And so in a lot of ways, anger sells and social media is, is by and large how we sell things and how we interact with people. And so there's a lot of incentives to to be angry and to be sort of bombastic and over the top. And so while there there may be other things, perhaps more you know deep-seated things that are causing us to be angry, I think it's hard to look at social media and say that this isn't contributing to some degree. I think one aspect of your work that, that lay people would find really interesting is how exactly you go about doing this research on anger. Because, you know, if, if I understand correctly, you, you basically get people angry and then ask them about, about politics. So I, I guess that, you know, you're, you're not following people around and like waiting for them to stub their toe and then leaping out from behind the door and saying, do you support democratic values? You know, what, what's the process? Well, I certainly don't do that. I don't know if that study would ever get approved. But um, what I do is, is I have conversations with people like you and I are doing, or I may ask them to, to write to me. And the idea is that I ask them to write about a time they were angry. And this is a, a technique known as emotional recall. And so if I say, hey, Andy, I want you to tell me about a time you were very angry. You might tell me about a time somebody ran into the back of your car, or, or you might tell me about a time that you got into a fight with a friend. And by re-experiencing and retelling that anger-inducing event, you, you become angry again, right? So you might use words or phrases that are indicative of you being angry. You might tense up. Your heart rate might increase. And so people are, are essentially making themselves angry on my behalf. And once they're in this emotional state, I change the conversations to politics. And I say, okay, wh what do you think about the government? Do you trust them? What do you think about people who support the other political party? Um, so while it would be kind of funny to follow people around and wait for them to stub their toe, as you suggest, um, it's, it's, it's much more simple than that. One thing that, that you point out in your book, which I think is really interesting, is that so this method of emotional recall probably doesn't get people too angry compared to actually becoming angry about politics or about events in their lives. So so, so I guess that we, we can derive from that the fact that what you found, probably the reality is, is much more magnified. That's right. These are very conservative 
treatments, right? I'm, I'm making people angry, but it's not a very strong dosage of anger. You know, they're not getting the, the 10 milligrams of aspirin, <laughs> they're getting two milligrams if we, if we want to go with that analogy. But it's certainly the case that asking people to reflect on something that made them angry is going to induce less anger than experiencing something contemporaneously that made them angry. And so I think what you said is, is certainly true. The implications of this are, are perhaps um, not, not so great. Um, if I can show these, these sort of negative consequences of anger, when the anger that I'm inducing in people is quite minimal, then you have to wonder what happens in, you know, quote, the real world when people really do become angry about politics. Is it purely anger about politics that you find produces these changes in people's perceptions of, of the government and the other party and so on? Or, or um, is it just general anger as well? So this is a great question. And it turns out that anger need not be about politics in order to affect political attitudes and political beliefs. And so this is sort of a, a weird thing to wrap your head around. But I imagine most of your listeners can resonate with this. Right? Emotions are not something that we can easily compartmentalize. Right? If I'm upset because I got into a fight with my neighbor, then when I see my colleague in the hallway, I'm probably not going to be in a very good mood. And that might cause me to say or do something that I might later regret. And so it's the same thing with anger. If I'm made angry by something completely unrelated to politics, that emotional state can still affect how I view the world of politics. And so part of what I find is that in some cases, it's the magnitude of our anger that matters more than the specific source of our anger. So the angrier we are, the more likely we are to distrust the government or be less committed to democratic norms and values. And this is one of the, the peculiarities of, of emotions themselves. And I, I find this really interesting when I consider how much American political discourse and debate nowadays seems to be about questions of identity versus questions of policy and things that I might consider strictly political in, in the policy sense, you know, so an awful lot of effort is put in on both sides into riling up um, supporters around identity issues, right? So Republicans spend a lot of time on, on culture war issues. So you get things like um, like Josh Hawley's, you know, giving a speech in the Senate about the 1619 project during the pandemic, you know, which is something that the government really has nothing to do with, right? But But it gets people angry. And then that seems to advance the political causes that he believes in, albeit indirect. Yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to that. And, and what this speaks to is that politicians can use anger for their own strategic purposes. Right? Josh Hawley is, as most things are in America these days, a very polarizing figure. Um, but to his credit, he knows that anger can be useful for him. Right, And so one of the ways I talk about this in the book is that anger can act as a partisan bonding agent. Right? I, I may not particularly like my own side, my own party, but if I'm very angry at the other party, I'm much more likely to remain loyal to my own party at the ballot box. Thus creates a, a lot mm -hmm. of perverse incentives mm -hmm. because politicians are first and foremost concerned with getting reelected. Mm -hmm. And so they're willing to make the trade-off of having you know, some, some bad things happening at a very systemic level for American politics because that anger gets them reelected. And so there's a, a real dilemma here for us if we're trying to, you know, reduce the tensions or reduce the amount of anger that we see in our contemporary political discourse. <laughs>
You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Yeah, and I think that that brings us really nicely to to actually the these bad systemic effects that you found in in your study, right? So you um you found that high levels of anger are associated with at least three important effects on American politics. So firstly, lowering trust in the federal government, and um, secondly, causing Americans to weaken their commitment to democratic values, and thirdly, producing high levels of partisan loyalty as you just mentioned at the ballot box. So I wondered if you could talk us through in turn, and I, I know this might take a while, you know, how, yeah. how you think anger is producing these three outcomes. So the first thing I would say is that anger is a very corrosive force, a, a corrosive force in so many different um, um, areas of American politics. Um, so, so the first thing, as you've mentioned, is that anger can lower trust in government. And part of this is that when politicians are eliciting anger about you know, politics or, or government or, um, you know, the, the, the people in D.C. or Capitol Hill or whatever sort of phrase or lexicon they want to use, people are directing their anger at the government precisely because that is the thing that's making them angry, right? So there's a, a concept in psychology known as um, mood congruity, and this says that every emotion has either a positive or a negative valence attached to it. That valence determines how I view the world around me. So if I'm happy and you say, Stephen, what do you think about this this new restaurant in town? I'm probably going to say, hey, you know, the, the dish is, is really good. You know, it's a great environment. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful place. But if I'm angry, I'm going to say, you know, it, it was overpriced. The food was undercooked. <laughs> it, it wasn't good. And so it's a similar story when we're thinking about government. Right? You see this um, a lot of times on the political right. You know, it's you should be angry at the government. There's this federal overreach. They're increasing your taxes. And so that's causing me to to be less trustful of the government as an institution Mm -hmm. because I am perpetually told that I should be angry at the government. Mm -hmm. And so it's this negative valence that's causing me to to lower my trust in the federal government Mm -hmm. itself. Now, that's problematic for a host of reasons. Right. Trust in government can facilitate bipartisan cooperation. It can sort of perpetuate support for social welfare programs. And so there are real consequences to Americans losing trust in the national government. Mm-hmm. The second thing you've brought up is that anger can cause us to be less committed to democratic norms and values. And this might be the most problematic of, of all of these things. Right? When people are angry, they, they prioritize seeing their side win at all costs, right? And so this could be at the ballot box, in the halls of Congress, or in any other domain we might think of. Mm-hmm. And so specifically, I show that when people are angry at the opposing political party, they're more likely to say that those that disagree with me politically are a threat to the country's well-being. And they're more likely to say that concern for minority opinions is, is slowing political progress in this country. So basically, anger is causing us to see politics as a zero-sum game. My win is your loss, and, and your win is my mm-hmm. loss. And, and what we want to do is see our side win. Mm-hmm. The, the final thing that you mentioned is this idea that anger can increase our loyalty at the ballot box. right? 
one of the things we know about anger is that it causes people to rely on simple cues or, or heuristics when they're making judgments. Now, when we think about politics, the biggest cue or heuristic we could ever have is, is your partisan identification. And so what this means is that when you're angry, you're more likely to think of yourself as a Republican or as a Democrat. And so you're sort of doubling down on your partisan identity, and that's what's causing you to vote for your party. Now, I think in some ways, all three of these consequences can be seen by the events of January 6th in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the people who attacked the United States Capitol surely didn't trust the federal government. Right? You're, you're covering up you know, fraud. Right? You're, you're lying <laughs> to us. So, so there's a clear lack of yeah. trust. They were very loyal to Donald Trump, largely because Donald Trump had elicited this anger. Yeah. And going to, to the, the extreme end of attacking a democratic institution shows a real lack of commitment <laughs> to democratic norms and values. <laughs> I'll say so. And so, yeah. <laughs> so this is, this is a, it's a consequential thing. We're seeing this yeah. play out today. Yeah. Do you? So I, I appreciate that you didn't focus on this precise question in your research, but I wonder also if you would expect that this, um, so that the declining trust in the federal government that, that you see when people's anger is increased, would you expect that this also transfers over to other institutions as well? And, and you know, in potentially problematic ways for um, American society as well. So, you know, basically, if someone is already keyed up to have a negative view of an institution, then anger is going to kind of exacerbate that. And and this can kind of generally, I guess, undermine support for a whole range of societal and po- important political institutions. I would expect that that is the case. Um, you know, I think there's always been a, a bit of a strand of, you know, anti-elitism in American life. Um, and, I, and I think the anger that we see today has exacerbated that sort of thought, right? Um, I don't trust epidemiologists and medical scientists about COVID. Um, so generally, this sort of speaks to a, a declining amount of trust in universities as institutions. Mm-hmm. If we want to think specifically about political institutions, right, you could look at things like the Supreme Court or even state governments. Mm-hmm. I think in general, um, this period of American life is characterized by a real lack of trust in institutions and authority figures. And so I think I think it's a good point to say that this isn't just the national government, which in and of itself is is a broad term. Um, I think this is a pretty pretty wide trend that we're seeing throughout American society. Yeah, and it's it's interesting in to me in that respect to think about the the last um, year or has it been a year now or fourteen months of the pandemic, which we were just talking about before we came on air, you know, and this has been for many people a really ang- angry period, right? It's been a, one of immense emotional and psychological disturbances for for a lot of people, and yeah, it's it, it's interesting. To, although I guess we'll never know the answer to that question, to to, to think about how this anger really contributed to the turbulent events of the last year. You know, January 6th, obviously been the, the most obvious one, but but other times as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there have been a series of, of events that, that point to this growth in anger over the past five or so years, right? You can go back a little bit further and think about the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, mm-hmm. with the Unite the Right rally. Yeah. Um, we've seen, um, you know, anger about police brutality, Um so, you know, there, there is this idea um, that anger can serve to increase participation. And, and we're seeing that, right? We're seeing people take to the streets and, and voice their opinions. In a lot of ways, that's good, right? This is one of the good things about anger is that it gets people involved in the process. 
The problem is that we're seeing this anger sort of morph beyond a healthy form of anger, and it can lead to things like we saw on the 6th. And so I think one of the important things would be finding a way to, you know, sort of channel that anger into healthy pursuits rather than these, you know, clear violations of, of norms like we, we saw on January 6th. Yeah, and I, I think that that brings us really nicely to the next question I wanted to ask, actually, which is that, so, I mean, just, so just to preface this, I mean, we we often say that um, this current period of American politics is one of very intense polarization and very deep disagreement between two sides. Um, you know, and there's there's a point to be made. Well, in fact, sorry, you just made this point that actually disagreement can be great, right? So you can, historians will often say one of the least um, polarized periods of recent American history was the aftermath of, of the Civil War, sorry, uh, of World War II. There was a consensus, but it was built around the exclusion of African-Americans in the South from American politics, right? And it, and it was, in a sense, good that the parties became polarized around, um, you know, addressing this issue on the one hand and resisting on the other, but that allowed change to, to take place. And I think that, so one thing that you talk about a lot in your book is indeed the effect of, of polarization um, and particularly what is sometimes, I'd always always encountered it previously as, as effective polarization. You, you also call it negative partisanship. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about what this is and, and why it links so closely to the study of anger. Sure. So negative partisanship is is work that I've done with a colleague of mine, and we were really motivated by this puzzle where we saw increasing numbers of Americans voting straight ticket, right? They're voting for one party up and down the ballot. But at the same time, more Americans than ever were saying, I'm a political independent. And mm-hmm. these are sort of contradictory trends. And so mm-hmm. we said, well, well, you know, hang on, what's going on here? And so what we did is we looked at how Americans feel about the two political parties over a period of of 70 years or so. And we found that how Americans feel about their own political party has been relatively stable. We, We feel about the same towards our party as we always have. But what's changed is how we feel about the other party. And there has been a precipitous decline in how we feel in an affective sense towards the other party. And this is important because the more negatively you view the other side, the more loyal you are to your own. And so what this means is that American politics is is really governed not by bonds of affection for, for my party, but it's a politics of loyalty by negativity. And so part of what I see my work on anger is doing is saying that it's this anger that is really the psychological mechanism that is driving this negative partisanship that we see. Um, so, so that's really where I where I see the connection. I think your point about the, the sort of historical trends and and you know disagreement and negativity in American politics is is really important. You know, if we go back further, much further than than World War II, we had the era of good feelings at one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but even the era of good feelings wasn't wasn't that good. We had very intense internal party <laughs> divisions. Right. And so, really, the the norm and sort of the hallmark of American politics is anger and negativity. I mean, this is sort of a, a defining theme of, of what it means to engage in politics in this country. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy, and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. As 
far as I, I can tell, part of the story of polarization becoming so much worse and negative partisanship becoming so much worse is also a story of the nationalization of American politics as well, right? So as you say, you know, it used to be the case that the, the parties were kind of regional coalitions and there was a lot of disagreement that, that went on within the parties. But a great deal of, you know, there's this horrible old cliche, right? All politics is local. And it's, it's not actually true anymore, right? You know, so it, yeah. it used to be the case that when, when people were voting, they were, you know, well, I mean, I don't want to make a generalization, but it was much more likely in earlier periods of American history, they were voting on local issues or, or, or kind of state issues, regional issues. But nowadays, like everything is nationalized, right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, with, with apologies to Tip O'Neill, I, I, I do not think that all <laughs> politics is local anymore. Yeah. Um, this is problematic because, you know, what it means to be a Democrat in Oklahoma is going to be very similar to what it means to be a Democrat in New York or California. And those are states with very different cultures and political climates. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in, in earlier eras, a Democrat in Oklahoma was very conservative or, or a Democrat in, in the Deep South was very conservative. Yeah. But these sort of regional differences that you've discussed really don't exist anymore. And so there's very little room for partisans to differentiate themselves from their national brand. And so if it's the case that a Republican is a Republican is a Republican, then you telling me that you're a Republican tells me a lot about you, Yeah. right? I don't have to say you're a Republican. Oh, but but you're the, the New York flavor of Republicanism. Yeah. That, that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And so it's easier for Americans to understand somebody's political views and their attitudes just by knowing their partisanship. It, it seems to me as well, you know, that the people who are outliers make themselves enormous targets nowadays. So I think about Joe Manchin, for instance, you know, and so right now, you know, the, the Democrats have a very kind of perilous majority in the Senate thanks in part to the existence of Joe Manchin, right? And and he has to be a different type of Democrat to get elected in West Virginia. But because now there's this kind of assumption that a strong central party brand should be something that everyone is endorsing and everyone's sticking to the same positions, he finds himself the, the target of so much intra-party fire for not adopting more progressive positions. But then, you know, without Joe Manchin, you don't have a majority to pass anything. Where, where this leads to me is, is I just wonder about the, the, the asymmetry between the, the two parties here as well. So are they, all, are they affected by these trends equally, do you think? And it's, could you offer maybe a few observations on how they've affected Democrats and Republicans today? So in terms of nationalization, I, I think both parties have been affected relatively equally. Um, you know, the the sort of Republican analog to Joe Manchin would be Susan Collins in Maine. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of the, the two holdouts from a less nationalized period. Um, so I, I, I do think that nationalization has affected both political parties. It's not as clear to me whether there is uniform effects of anger for both parties. It is certainly the case that both Democrats and Republicans can be made angry, and that anger can have very similar consequences across partisan divides. I think you would be hard-pressed to say anything other than Republicans are more explicit in their appeals to anger today than Democrats are. You know, there's this sort of trite saying of, of you know, if you're a Republican, your goal is to own the libs, right? It's this <laughs> sort of, I mean, really sort of a comical thing now, but... Yeah. I think that saying explains a lot of what it means to be a Republican today, right? I want to make Democrats angry, and that sort of reaffirms my identity as a Republican or a conservative. 
This is not to say that that Democrats and liberals don't engage in, in anger as a tactic. I mean, you can look at the four years of the Trump presidency, and it mm-hmm. was always, you should be angry that Trump did this or Trump did that. And so there is this sense that both sides engage in this. I think from a, a purely, you know, just tactical point, I think Republicans are probably better at it. I think they're better at riling up their base than Democrats are. Um, but this isn't some mystery where one side knows that anger can be useful electorally and another doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, one could make the argument that part of the reason Democrats, you know, took back control of Congress was this growth and anger towards Donald Trump, particularly among people living in the suburbs, right? They were sort of repulsed by what they had seen as these excesses of the previous four years. And I said, you know, I, I may not like Joe Biden, but at least he's not Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And so I think that anger really worked against Donald Trump in this previous election. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, one of the reasons that I find your research so interesting and, and thought-provoking is that, you know, I I have this this opinion if if i don't think about it too too closely that basically republicans are the ones who are in the anger game and they spend their whole time you know cynically um whipping up anger but then i think about how much of the previous four years i spent angry (laughs) about american politics and 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 then think about the effects that that had on me you know and 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 think about also the way that that anger could have been and and probably was strategically manipulated by politicians and and media outlets so you know i think that it's really useful for for holding up a mirror so i want just as as kind of a final question and what your read is on on the biden presidency so far when viewed in in the context of your work on anger so biden does in some ways seem to have turned down the temperature a little bit on american politics you know it it makes makes a real difference that, you know, we used to have a president who just spent his time in the White House basically tweeting whatever he could that, that to try and rile people up. And now so much of political news is about these really drawn out um, negotiations on overspending bills. You know, I mean, I, I've, I have students in my class who, you know, have spent just the entire kind of period of their life. They've been in political consciousness and um, living in the era of Trump and they don't know what's hit them. You know, they're not used to the fact that, that American politics is often in a normal administration. A lot of it is about these really boring, drawn out congressional uh, negotiations. <laughs> you know, a lot is at stake, but it's not headline uh, exciting headline news every day so but you know on the other hand i i'm not sure that you know we should take away from this that these long-term structural trends that you're talking about have really changed so i just wondered where you come out on that question this is a really important question there's you know potentially a lot to be said there um i think the first thing i would say is that you know i think by comparison anyone would would come across as less angry compared to Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how much credit we should give to, to the current president for that. But but you're 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 right. Um, Joe Biden has struck a very different tone, a very different tenor coming from the White House. It's clear that anger still exists on the Republican side, not only at Democrats, but among themselves. So Liz Cheney losing her spot in, in leadership for not going along with the slide that the election was stolen. There's still a sense of grievance about Joe Biden being the president. I think part of the reason we perhaps don't see as much anger among Democrats right now is is because they know they have a very narrow window to do things, right? It's it's almost certainly going to be the case that Democrats lose control of Congress in the midterms. This is the, the general trend against the president's party. They already have very tenuous margins to begin with. And so I think they know that they need to really band together in this particular moment. 
I suspect that if Republicans do take back control of Congress in the 2022 midterms, we'll see a return of this anger because we're going to have divided government once again. And it's going to be this sort of fever pitch buildup to the 2024 presidential election. And so we're going to see a lot of jockeying between, you know, who's at fault for for this gridlock and this stalemate that we see. Mm -hmm. You should be angry because Democrats are are trying to overreach or you should be angry because Republicans are being obstructionists. Mm -hmm. And so I think if anything, what we're seeing now is is a little bit of a detente, but it's not a, a reversal of these trends. And the reason I, I don't think it's a reversal of these trends is because, as you said, these are systemic things that are going on in American politics. And so the election of one man, Joe Biden, is not going to reverse decades of, of things that have developed to produce this culture and this climate of anger that we see. So while we might be in you know certain cases um, higher or lower levels of anger, I don't think that's going to do anything to stop this overall trend of of a rise in anger in American politics. Well, it seems like every interview on this podcast recently <laughs> ends on a depressing note. And uh, here's here's another one that uh, anger is going to be with us for a, a really long time. But thanks so much, Stephen, uh, for, for sharing your thoughts with us today. And those of you who are interested in Stephen's book can, uh, and indeed his other academic work, can find links to it in the show notes. So thanks again, Stephen. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>